0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening?
1: David, you know, as Jim Morrison says, everything is broken up in dances. I, I'm doing well, or as Carl Jung relates, malungu. Have you ever heard that <laughs> expression? It's, it's great.
0: I have not. Oh,
1: uh, well, he talks, it's, uh, he relates the story of a, a tribe in Central Africa, and I can't imagine a harder core place than central Africa. I've been there once and I'm glad I'm not there now actually, but these people, when they would confront something astonishing or hard to process, they would say Mulungu, which I think is a great way to handle things. So that's the way I'm feeling. I'm, I'm feeling good, but I'm astonished and, uh, Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's hard to process. So, Balungo.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually, you know, I was in my shower this morning, and I was um, thinking, as one does, in the shower, and the thoughts were coming hard and fast. And I took a breath and waited for a second, and I thought, you know, I want to think the way that people before language thought. So I tried my best to shut off that internal monologue, that's just always running, that's just going and going and going. And I think I was successful for about 10 or 15 seconds, but it was a pretty trippy 10 or 15 seconds to just try to completely divest yourself of the internal meanings of everything and try to explain everything to yourself. I realized that we, we do that a lot.
1: Well, you know, that experience is, you know, famously a, a really, you know, it's an ego social system-shattering moment. I mean, I think if you manage 15 seconds, that's a pretty good effort, you know?
0: Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking about last episode as far as speaking in tongues and, and getting away from all the associated uh, meanings of language. If you take language out entirely, you're left with a kind of strange sensory experience where you're just sort of a conduit. You're just, you're just an experiencing being.
1: Well, it's that pre-linguistic, you know, mystery, isn't it, that, that we, we as a culture and a, and a species must have gone through, uh, you know, that, that amazing, we do that, we kind of recapitulate that in, in our childhoods, you know, but it's very hard to really retain the memory, It's sort of like retaining memories of, of you know, very vivid dreams sometimes. It kind of falls apart the moment you, you get the language processor working. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. that's the problem. Mm-hmm. It short circuits that deeper, uh, more ancient meaning.
0: Right, right. Exactly. I think that that's the eternal question that we're going to bump up against a lot in this show, which is how do you explain the unexplainable? You know, how do I really explain my San Pedro Mescaline alien encounter to people without using words like alien and devices, and otherworldly, it doesn't quite give people the feeling of what I was experiencing when I was there. No,
1: but I think with people who are sympathetic to it, I understand. I mean, it's interesting that uh, strange machines, you know, comes comes up a lot in that alien Mm -hmm. experience environment. There must be a reason for that. Uh, Terence McKenna talks about that at length uh, with DMT experiences that, that you know, peculiar and, and inexplicable machinery is very much a part of, of the vision. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and he means it very directly. He's not uh, thinking of that as, as sort of a linguistic metaphor for what can't be explained. I mean, in part, what we're talking about, I think the way I think of it in, in a dreaming sense I often have this sense that what I'm getting is a backstage glimpse of of my consciousness and my associative mm. patterns. And uh, it reminds me of being a child. My mother was a drama teacher, and when I was really little, I would spend a lot of time backstage. She She was teaching junior high in the Oakland School District. And I'd be backstage, and I'd be seeing all these strange, you know, like cardboard, Uh, gravestones and plywood swords and some ridiculous sort of foam rubber dragon tail, you know, all this paraphernalia from various, you know, shows and plays. And um, I think that we do get these glimpses behind the scenes of our very, very deep associative patterns, which are the templates, you know, for the language uh, layer, the the language stratum, uh, in an evolutionary sense, but to go below that is to really get into some very murky, jungly terrain. You know?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you the story of my alien encounter no, on San no. Pedro cactus? Would you like to hear? I it?
1: I certainly would. I, I kind of, I felt that you were leading to that, so absolutely, <laughs> I did.
0: <laughs> and this is actually this is not uh, this is not planned, but it's a great story. So it'll take me a couple minutes, but it's worth it. So when I was um, in my early 20s, I was hanging out with my friend Eric in his brand new apartment. And, you know, he's a dude, just left home, um, no furniture to speak of. And a friend of ours brought over a Ziploc bag full of crushed up San Pedro cactus. Okay. Now, the trick about San Pedro cactus is that the mescaline inside of it is not evenly distributed. It's not like a drug. You can't just take it and get a dose. Um, so I went first. So we put the San Pedro cactus into a little bowl of Polish pottery, added some water, which gives it this kind of slug-like consistency. And then we put cinnamon on it to make it, quote-unquote, taste good. <laughs> so it, it did not taste uh, good. I'm sure not. Uh, Yeah, so basically this feeling of a slug going down your throat is pretty accurate. So I take it, and my friends take it, and they get not very much at all, which leads me to believe that I got all of the mescaline in that dose, right? Um, So I'm laying on the floor of his apartment, and while he doesn't have any furniture at all, he has an overhead projector used in classrooms, which he points at the ceiling and then puts some... Uh, Again, Ziploc bags full of colored food dye on the projector to like move them around on the ceiling. So I'm seeing these reds and greens and blues. It's all very trippy. And then everybody gets tired and goes to bed. And I start really tripping after that. So my eyes snap open and I look in the corner and there are two, you know, gray aliens standing there. And they show me something called the weapon of the apocalypse. Which are these three shapes? During my trip, they're they're extremely complex and you know almost four dimensional these things. Um, but when I wake up the next morning and I'm trying to, to show my friends um, what these things mean, it's just these three shapes: it's a dot, a U, and a kind of a, a little bridge type shape. Now. The aliens told me that I had to get back with my now wife, then girlfriend, uh, or my life would never be okay. So they tell me that, and then they show me this weapon of the apocalypse. So years and years pass. Rios and I get back together, um, and we plan a, a trip to Seoul, South Korea. This is a few years ago. And around that time, I'm working on this short story about a mime. And the mime can kill people with invisible weapons. So it's very Looney Tunes, right? right. Uh, a person can be hit. Like the, the mime will swing and it'll look like nothing's there, but then a person's head will get smashed, right? Because it's an invisible mallet. Um. That point becomes important in just a moment. Also, around that time, I started responding to the things that my wife was telling me with the words chun-chun, which didn't mean anything to me at all. It was just a paralanguage thing that I was doing because I thought that it was cute. So she would say, do you want to go to the grocery store? And I would say chun-chun. Or she would say, you know, uh, is it time for bed? And I would say chun-chun, right?
1: (laughs) The (laughs) all-purpose answer. Yeah,
0: the the all-purpose answer. So we are getting ready to go to Seoul and we're planning our trip and we have, you know, we're going to go to this district and that district. We're going to see, you know, the biggest Buddha in Southeast Asia, which we did end up seeing. It was magnificent. Uh, Built on the site of a dragon ascending to heaven. Very cool stuff. But while we're looking around, we notice that there is a mime festival in Chuncheon, South Korea. Synchronicity. yeah, so I saw that and I said, you know what, we have to go. We have to go to, to, this, to, to this mime festival. And we went and it turns out Chun Chun has a mime school, right? So we go and it's, you know, it's not particularly entertaining or interesting. But the logo or the symbol for the mime school is the weapon of the apocalypse. It's a dot, a U, and a little bridge type structure right so it's exactly what i saw in my mind about a decade earlier with that trip and i feel like that because the other thing that the aliens were telling me was that i had to make my life with my wife correct before anything would be good i took that as a sign that i had done the correct thing you know what i mean it was it was closing that loop you know it's like when you see this symbol you will know that you've accomplished your goal
1: wow Wow. Well, you know, there's a time displacement there, and of course, you know, when we when we're talking about language, I mean, this was, you know, of course, Bisky's sort of insight that man is the time binding creature and language is the mechanism for doing that. And underlying that are this is this imagery, pre-linguistic sort of associative sort of world unto itself where a lot of things are bubbling up in our consciousness all the time that we probably don't attend to, you know, we, most of the time, we probably just don't pick up those little fragments. They disappear into the daydream of of normal life. But every once in a while, something will stick and call attention to this whole other dimensional frame. And that's what the speaking in tongues, that's what Poetry in its ancient magic sense is about, you know, reconnecting us too. Um, uh, I think that's a fascinating story of, of, of that and synchronicity, the, the Jungian concept of that. Um, you know, it links back totally to language, you know, we, we see that all the time that there are these strange associative patterns that reveal themselves. And what they're showing us, I think, is that maybe we're far more magically connected to the total world around us than we like to think. You know, everyone likes to think mm-hmm. they're kind of, you know, speaking of aliens, that we're alienated from, you know, the world. Uh, depersonalization right. is, the, is the, the third most common psych, psychiatric problem after depression and anxiety. But I mean, is it, is it real? Maybe it's absolutely not real and we're just ignoring. All of this fabulous information that's pouring in, you know. I mean, Mm -hmm. remember what we're saying about Gregory Bateson's ideas about information. Information is what makes a difference, information is rich in terms of its unpredictability. And so, because it is unpredictable, we're not ready for it, obviously, and we may miss a lot of it, you know. We may miss some really cool stuff that's and perhaps our our normal you know waking walking around life might be only 1% attentive to the clues and the mysteries
0: you know i think that's precisely correct i think that's what we were talking about on a previous episode about uh, aboriginal peoples in australia who were definitely psychic they definitely had access to that realm of their brain and i think that it's not exclusive to that group of people it's something that we all share, but that we've kind of shut out. And I think that a lot of quote-unquote mental disorders, which we're going to get into here shortly, can really be reduced to abnormalities in the context of a system that has a very linear and materialistic framework for how things should work. I don't think that people who have depression or anxiety are necessarily wrong to feel those things. I think those things are byproducts of modern society. Well, Because a question question that occurred to me, a question that occurred to me was, you know, would a hunter gatherer 50,000 years ago, the way that they lived their life, um, would that person have experienced what we call depression? It's impossible to know. It's unfalsifiable but my gut tells me no.
1: I would agree with that in the sense of, of, of you know, modern contemporary depression. I, I think that is very much a cultural uh, product. And I think we'll get into in a moment of, of the, the problem with dealing with mental illness issues in our society is that we still think of them in isolated, organic, physical unit terms, as in an individual person, when really, a more a culture-oriented uh, approach would be a more anthropological approach, if you like, rather than a pure psychotherapy approach. Uh, but before we get into, uh, well, I mean, it, it's on, on the same topic, but I, I did think about, you know, when we were talking about speaking in tongues and the, the physicality of language, which gave us the title of our last episode, The Dance Language of Beasts. Which is a line from a James Dickey poem. I was it did get me thinking about the uh, the gangster, the Depression era gangster Dutch Schultz, who is a contemporary colleague of of Dillinger and, and Babyface Nelson. What a great moniker Babyface Nelson is, isn't it? I mean uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Mickey Rooney played that character in a movie. And uh, I wrote a story once where J. Edgar Hoover is actually sponsoring these guys, these villains, these nefarious outlaw characters. He's sponsoring them so he can secure more funding for the then new FBI. But uh, people may know that that when uh, Schultz was dying and he took a long time to die, he went off into a kind of uh, malarial, almost delirium.
0: Like a fugue state.
1: Absolutely, this rambling surrealist stream of dying of the light consciousness, and uh, people like William Burroughs and Robert, Robert Anton Wilson were, were very excited about it. But um, the it, it's a fabulous, uh, you know, it, it's really kind of uh, well. There's no other way to call it. it it's poetry, I think. Um, so yeah. could we hear some? I I, I think that uh, yes. you uh, you're interested I have it in this too. Up here. Okay.
0: Yeah, I have it called up here. Uh, so these are quotes from the the transcript. Uh, so it's not what he said in order necessarily. But this is um, from the police transcripts of incoherent deathbed confession, which actually is a great title for a poem. It certainly is. It certainly is. <laughs> so here we go. Oh, mama, mama, please don't tear, don't rip. Mother is the best bet, and don't let Satan draw you too fast. Who shot me? No one. I will be checked and double-checked, and please pull for me. The sidewalk was in trouble, and the bears were in trouble, and I broke it up. I can't come. Express office was closed. Please crack down on the Chinaman's friends and Hitler's commander. These native children make this and sell you the joint. You can play jacks, and girls do that with a softball and do tricks with it. A mother's boy has never wept, nor dashed a thousand kim. Oh, oh, Dog Biscuit. And when he's happy, he doesn't get snappy. Hey, Jimmy, the chimney sweeps. Talk to the sword. Shut up, you got a big mouth. Please come help me, Henny. Max, come over here. French-Canadian bean soup. I want to pay. Let them leave me alone.
1: Wow, that's good. shit. Man. Uh, that, that's good. Shit, man. That meets all my criteria for, for poetry, you know. I, I think that's yeah. really, um, it, it's an amazing uh,
0: that's speaking in tongues, isn't it? It
1: absolutely is. You know, it takes us right back to that nexus of absolutely fundamental vocal music and mysterious content, you know that moment of magic when the tongues started to have other layers and levels of connection and Mm -hmm. i mean think about that there must have been you know a period who knows how long where idiolex as in completely private languages private magics personal charm words would have been the go and then that gradual mysterious attempt to socialize the magic, to get the tribe interested in using the phrases. Uh, remember what my exercise of getting my students to you know turn their, uh, their name into, into a verb or, or to create a new word. I mean, it, that's phenomenally strange. We don't really understand how that process must have happened. I mean, even Noam Chomsky really doesn't know. It's, it's very, very out there. But I, I think it's fair to say that this idea of speaking in tongues, the primeval poetry as the first magic, uh, while that now seems like a way to help us break out of the binary oppositions and the, the calcified linearity of thought that, that unfortunately society and culture have corrupted and devolved into, it's also a way of getting back to the original starting point, the original dance ground, you know, fear and trembling,
0: wonder, ecstasy, uh, malungo, you know? That- right, And there's and there's a real randomness to this that can't be replicated by machines. Good point. I think, yeah. I also think that there's a randomness to it that can't quite be replicated by poets who maybe try to replicate that. You'll notice when a poet tries to be absurd or dada, certain themes come back, particularly themes of violence and sexuality. So you'll see a lot of, you know, uh, uh, gore and you'll see a lot of uh, uh, kind of up close and personal talking about genitalia. You'll notice with uh, Dutch Schultz here. There's nothing scatological or sexual or violent, for the most part, about what he's saying. It's pure randomness. The sidewalk was in trouble, and the bears were in trouble, and I broke it up. That's, that's pure. That is, a, that is a pure kind of... What's the word I'm looking for? A pure encapsulation of the dance language of beasts
1: it is yes and and at the same time what's interesting is that there is a a, a coherent grammar uh, and and semantic structure right. to it precisely yes so yes. i mean so in in that in that sense that a dance has a kind of coherence and yet a spontaneity to it so where the randomness where the non-pretentious non-conscious non-striving for meaning and let's face it I, th- I think it's fair to say that if if writing goes wrong uh and it often does it's usually because uh the author creator I- is trying too hard to establish meaning right you know
0: yes yes so i actually i have another example uh so you're gonna get two david readings tonight <laughs> but my friend was working on um Something called GPT two. Have you heard of this? No. So GPT two is a is an it's an artificial intelligence, and you feed it a script, and then it auto generates text, and it can be a little creepy. Um, and I think that it actually gets kind of close to this. We can talk about you know the differences between AI generated random text uh, and human generated random text via, you know, ecstatic, entheogenic states or death. Um, but we put in, uh, my friend Eric had put in, this actually the exact same friend who I had this trip with, <laughs> uh, had, had put in a bunch of different, you know, song lyrics and things like this into this computer. And then we added the script for the Hiao uh, Miyazaki film Spirited Away into it. Um, and then basically you type in two lines And the text goes from there. So the first two lines are me, and then the rest of this is a computer. You ready? Hit it. We are all cats in a library. I was visited by a praying mantis. And now here's the computer. You're not hurting us. We're not hurting you. I've seen what they've done to your work. When I felt how clean and warm you look when you turn, so now the paper in my hand is different. The lyrics on the paper in my hand is different. I've seen what they've done to your church. I've seen what they've done to your tax code. So now the sign in my home says the king is coming. All the kings I've known, I know. So now the streetlight in my yard said the kings come. All the kings I've known, I know. Now all the cartoon in my kids' hands says the king is coming. All the kings I've known, I know. So now the dentist looks in your gum and you say... It said the word here in the ads, but there was no script, and your laugh's a mechanical, mechanical jingle. But I said the words there in the ads, but there was no script. I've seen what they've done to your shoes. They've sewn ID tags onto the heels. When I've said the world's coming to an end, I've been calling it a vampire like a mosquito. The paper in my hand is the same. The slogan on my shirt is the same. The song in my head is the same. I'm saying the king is coming. The sign in my face says the king is coming. But I've seen it all before, and the light in my phone is off. Wow. That's
1: fantastic.
0: That's a computer, man. It's
1: weird, weird, right? You know, I think it's it's just cool whoever wrote it, you know? Uh, I mean, again, I think there's a very profound structure at work there that makes – that really that that carries it, and I think the, the the idea of linguistic structure, like the idea of musical structure, or uh, structure in the sense of color and line visually, uh, that's a pretty important uh, human concept. That 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 really has an awful lot to do with us determining sense and a degree of coherence that we can relate to and and connect to. So. And notice the repetition. I mean, there, there's some beautiful. There's, there's there are poetic and rhetorical strategies within that piece that uh, that really carry it and and convey some projected meaning, but also invite reader uh, attention. You know, um, I think yeah. that that's yeah. quite marvelous. But but here's the thing. So if, if we say that, and I, I think that um, uh, machine learning and AI and and the whole field of comput- Computational linguistics is is going to get very fascinating, and it's very challenging uh, for for writers. Um, I mean, we've seen techniques like you know the cut ups of, of Burroughs and various chance types of uh, you know the kinds of things that John Cage was doing musically, and yet a lot of those experiments kind of don't work over extended narrative forms. So you know if you get to a short story or a novel they work poetically but thinking back to this idea of of the private thinking the visionary thinking because i think what you just read you know certainly in my mind qualifies as visionary art the way we were talking about you know outsider artists whether it's henry darger or simon rodia you know some of these amazing uh deeply eccentric Uh, people working in their own hermetic, you know, private mythologies. I I wonder where does that then uh, cross the line of being interesting, creative, visionary, and liberating from binary oppositions and linear thinking? When does it become a question of mental illness, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a big question. I think that it's a question that doesn't necessarily have an answer. And I think that mental illness is such a broad kind of category that we should probably break it down a little bit. Because we've talked briefly about things like depression and anxiety. And I think it's safe to say that those are certainly products of our modern world, of our brains trying to to deal with that. And while... Those things afflict a lot of people in very intense ways. They're also kind of largely uninteresting. What I'm more interested in is the schizophrenic side Mm -hmm. of the mental illness. You know, uh, bipolar, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, pure schizophrenia. They're all of a kind. All those, those three disorders are all, they all stem from the same place, allegedly, biologically. And I am a person who, who actually suffers from uh, kind of intense OCD, which borders on schizophrenia. Um, so mine is not, it's not like this cute thing where I wash my hands a bunch of times right. or anything like that. But mine is more where I have a constant voice in my head that tells me to do things. So what's going on there? I've been struggling with this a lot recently, uh, trying to figure out, is the voice that's in my head, is that me or is that something else that's talking to me? Um, and how seriously should I take it? So I'm, I'm very uh, excited to get into this topic because the way that you, you put it to me in an email was that uh, the most important kind of uh, grimoire or text uh, of, of the modern times, uh, short of the Corpus Hermeticum, was the DSM-5.
1: Absolutely. I, I truly believe this. Uh, this, of course, that's the abbreviation for the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the Bible at any given year for the psychiatric and psychological industries, let us call them, not professions, and, uh, When I I wrote my first novel, Zanesville, I thought I was uh, satirizing a situation where there's an evil and nefarious giant corporation who effectively manufacture psychological problems and conditions so they can then sell and market the uh, pharmacological sort of solutions to them. But of course, that's not, um, you know, (laughs) that's not satire anymore. But anyone i think all writers should have the latest version of the dsm but it's for anyone who's interested in culture and who's curious about the bizarre extremes that human behavior can go to i can just dig into this at any page and just find myself either just my mouth is just hanging open i'm laughing or I'm I'm just making notes. I mean, just listen to this one small strange thing. It's called the Issachar phenomenon. People who experience this are afflicted with a type of hypnagogic image in which a soft, doughy mass appears to be moving toward their face. It was first reported in 1938 by the Austrian psychoanalyst Otto Isakauer, who attributed it to a revival of the infantile experience of feeding at the mother's breast. Well, you know, I, I, I guess I buy that explanation, but if I start seeing giant doughy masses coming at me I, I think I'm I'm I, I'm not reverting to an infantile state. I'm having some sort of crisis, but um, what I what I particularly uh, love is is the uh, devotion to what are called culture bound syndromes, and I think this ties back into your question of is the any kind of obsessive compulsive thing going on in your mind? Is that you? Or to what extent is that connection with the, the larger world? I mean, that's the biggest question for all of us, isn't it? It's, you know, the, the German expression is is Eigenwelt. With the, that's the personal experience of existence in the world. What is our connection to the universe, so to speak, or at least the social world of, of, of culture? Um, my favorite well, my current favorite, it's hard to say a number one favorite, but you'll, everyone will understand why I think this is both amusing and and deeply disturbing. It is the condition called Koro, that's one word, which is um, not to be confused with Kuru, the degenerative nervous system uh, disease found in New Guinea. I don't know if people, it's um, that is a very, very serious disease. It was originally believed to have been caused by the cannibal consumption of human brains. Um, not surprisingly, we, we have fewer instances of kuru, uh, people will be glad to know. But um, koro is, is actually a Malay word, um, and I enjoy, um, I'm, I'm doing some translations of, of, of poetry. Uh, it means the head of a turtle. The head of a turtle. People... I see where this is going. Yeah, yeah, okay. In uh, in in Chinese, it's called Shuk Yang. But what we're talking about here, and don't anyone start shrinking away, but we are talking <laughs> about the shrinking penis genital retraction syndrome. The
0: the helmet in the bush
1: yeah. <laughs> Well said, well said. God, I... Oh, I think uh, many males might be getting a little sort of squirmy right about now.
0: I mean, (laughs) stick with us, fellas.
1: This has got to be one of the most bizarre and yet globally widespread of of the body dysmorphic disorders. You know, it's just simply off the charts. I think it really is. Uh, and the explanations for it, of course, are completely insufficient to the trauma that the, the sufferers experience. But it doesn't stop, of course, with the individual. And I think this, again, is sort of our underlying theme that the, the psychological treatment of individuals is fundamentally flawed. That, that That's a Western idea that is just not paying dividends. Because with the shrinking penis problem, God, I can't even say that without having a little bit of a, I don't know if I'm smiling or kind of a little bit <laughs> queasy, you know, but it leads to, I mean, it straight straight away leads us into the world of folk magic and, and counter magic. And we mm. start to get the strangeness of Asian folk medicine in terms of harvesting tiger penis deer penis and, and this this is i just I, I this kind of stunned i i got the tiger penis okay i i wasn't sure about the deer penis but fur seal penis i i oh I,
0: you're not on the fur seal penis oh uh, look Dude, i take uh, i take it every day <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know i just didn't i just did not get there and if you know so there's some real strength but of course this ties in right now to uh the, the whole poaching of rhino horns, which really hits me personally, because uh, when I was in Africa, I, I had the chance to um, uh, be with, um, well, I spent three nights with an anti-poaching team and uh, their trained dogs in South Africa and Botswana. It was really, really heavy. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. these these people are seriously well-trained uh ex-military but the people they're they're looking out for are hardcore, ruthless mercenaries you know they're coming in in sound dampened blade helicopters dead at night heavily armed with electric chainsaws to you know steal the horns and and then the rhinos die so this is a big big sort of issue and it shows i think that that we can't ever have Uh, an idea of a psychological condition not having immense social and cultural uh, consequences, you know, can we?
0: Well, think about the metaphor at work there too, with the rhino horn. Uh, This is a very minor point, but one that I want to, you know, uh, illuminate a bit because, you know, when you think about, you know, people consuming tiger penis or deer penis or fur seal penis for whatever reason, um, like attracting like makes a lot of sense. right you know if you if you have a problem with your penis, maybe consume the penises of other animals. That kind of makes sense. But we're moving into the realm of magic and metaphor when rhino horn comes into it because note that it's not the rhino's penis because what's bigger? The horn or the penis? right, right? You could just as easily probably ground up like grind up a rhino's penis and consume that as the horn. So what is it about the horn, right? Because the horn is kind of the platonic ideal of the penis, right? It's 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 a it's this huge powerful unbreakable killer, you know, that is phallic in nature but isn't actually a phallus. So that's where that's where the magic comes in. There, I just wanted to make that point.
1: Yeah, well, it absolutely, we are actually you know totally in the world of of magic, black magic, witchcraft, sorcery, um, and you know the other the, the there is an interesting uh, book from the the uh, the Asian Chinese point of view. It's called Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio. That's how it's uh, it's translated. It's a it's a
0: companion. I have my copy on the way from Amazon.
1: Oh, cool! It. it uh, People really, if you haven't, uh, if listeners haven't heard of this, it's a compendium of sort of Charles Fortrian-style Chinese folk tales and, and marvel stories um, from um, the 18th century, 1740, which was uh, the Qing dynasty. Um, it, it's it's a, just a, an amazing background to how psychology and magic at a, at a folkloric level uh, totally intermingle. Um, but then, you know, from the Western tradition, uh, when we get into, you know, thoughts more of, uh, say, uh, you know, the European ideas of witchcraft, sorcery, and and black magic, the idea of this genital theft uh, comes in. So, so the, the, the penis shrinkage is actually uh, the witches are at work. They're stealing the penis. And uh, the malleus malficarum, the witch's hammer, people you know interested in, in occult history would be aware of. it's the, the 15th century European uh, handbook or manual for, for witchcraft investigations. Um, so it, this is a widespread uh, a truly global male nightmare insecurity phenomenon.
0: Uh, well let, let me tell you how globally spread it is. It affected me personally. Uh-oh. Right? Uh-oh. Now, 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 don't worry. My penis is fine. My penis is fine. Let me just get that out of the way. <laughs> no, don't get it out of the way.
1: Don't get it out of the way. You've got to hang <laughs> on to it, David. That's the whole point.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, correct, correct. Uh, I have a penis. Um, but when I was a younger guy, um, maybe 13, 14 years old, I was on a message board for video games. This is all very embarrassing, but I'll tell the whole thing. We're all friends here, right? Right. Um, well, you started, and now. I got into, I got into some kind of disagreement with a person who claimed to be a witch, right? And back in those days, I was very obnoxious on the internet. No, some might say. No. Might
1: say. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to believe, folks, uh, isn't it?
0: yeah some might say that that's never really gone away but uh but i was talking to this this self-identified witch and we disagreed about something and i said something uh uh rude or offensive i can't remember what i said but they they said that they were putting a curse on me to make my penis shrink exactly what we're talking about exactly right? <laughs> and so while <sighs> You know, while that didn't necessarily work, psychologically, that had a huge impact on me for the next two weeks, maybe even a month. I'd be <laughs> hanging out with my friends, and I would be like, "But what if it's fucking true? <laughs> you know, like what, what if my penis is shrinking into nothing, like as as I hang out with these people?" So, I have experience with this. It's 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 a it's a real thing. You know, I didn't. I eventually forgot about it and went about my life, but I do distinctly remember that being a very psychologically traumatic event in my life.
1: I can understand perfectly. And I think it's very difficult to, you know, uh, to put aside some kind of, I mean, you're not going to believe it necessarily, but it's still going to be the kind of thing that, that niggles at your brain because that's the yeah. nature of that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a,
0: because because what do you have against me? Like You have my screen name and a kind of vague idea of who I am, but nothing that would actually make magic work. So normally I would take that kind of thing very seriously if it was a person who I knew. Who could have potentially been in contact with me, or maybe even gotten a strand of my hair or something to that nature? I would have been very uh, serious about that. But the internet aspect makes it a little bit sillier. But still, I mean, it had an effect.
1: Yes. Look, none of us are above these psychological, you know, vulnerabilities.
0: Psychological, not not physical. I
1: wanna reiterate that <laughs> to all of our listeners. Well I do have a penis. That's why we have that psychosomatic sort of, you know, issue that it's it it, you know, it works on us that way. We're all we're all vulnerable to suggestion, going back to, you know, our, our discussion about uh, hypnosis. Uh, it, it magic wor- it, magic is, is still present in the world as a belief system because it works. You know no one has ever really explained how it works that's not the point of magic whereas that is say the point of science but magic has an effective uh angle of attack in the world because it's magic <laughs> you know that's how it mm-hmm. works but uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the, the idea here though is is you know of, of cultural connection this is i think a really good example where it isn't just a personal sort of thing that this is working on. It it has some resonance and some, some impact because psychology is cultural. That's my firm belief. I, I, I think that what we need is an anthropological approach. And mm-hmm. if you had been in, say, uh, a remote village with a traditional slash indigenous culture and you had seen... Uh, the equivalent of the shaman local headman, wise person, you know the mm-hmm. the treatment yes it would have it would have had something to do uh individually, but there would have absolute validation for this concept of witchcraft you know mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i mean there there in fact was which there was intent there was there was malicious intent. You know, so, I mean, I, that to me is the Correct. starting point of of, uh, of the whole thing. So, no, well, I, I think just, that's... Just as
0: a kind of aside, I mean, like, that's that's sort of where modern medicine is going lacking. You know, we have allopathic medicine and homeopathic medicine, and they're often at odds with each other, but I would love to see a synthesis of the two, of understanding the value that certain modern medical practices can have and acknowledging the steps that we've taken towards eliminating certain quote unquote diseases. I'm being very careful with my language here because I'm I'm not entirely certain where I stand on all this. And also integrating a kind of indigenous witchcraft perspective on these different ailments and taking those things seriously. I think if those two could be integrated, I think we'd see a lot of a lot of advancement where I, I feel like modern medicine has, has kind of butted up against its materialistic uh, wall.
1: I, I would go further and say that, that only if that were to happen will we see
0: an advancement. I, I think that the- I like it, I li- yeah, I, 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 like, I like going further there, I agree.
1: I, I just don't see the laboratory medical research uh, extreme uh, forensic materialist mechanistic frame being able to take us any further than it has you know it has
0: correct yeah
1: it it just is not going to it's 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 simply not going to solve the problems and I think there are some really good um psychotherapists who are seeing that right now and and trying to report on that from the trenches during uh the the whole pandemic and they're seeing a a need for a return to, say, family-based therapy, which is hard to arrange, admittedly. There's uh, one of the reasons that, I mean, family-based therapy was was getting a lot of traction in the 70s, and a lot of families just, you know, they're so fragmented, they're so at odds, you can't get everyone in to see a therapist, so there's some practical realities to it. But Mm -hmm. unless we have a cultural framework for mental health and mental illness, and I'm, I'm, I am I'm think it's fascinating that we often use the terms mental health and mental illness interchangeably. I mean, isn't that mm-hmm. very telling? We would never mm-hmm. do that with physical matters. There's health and fitness or there's illness. You don't kind of mingle them backwards and forwards, mm-hmm. but we can't even decide if we wanna phrase the thing positively or negatively. Um, but let's look at some other uh, culture-based um, disorders, um, to see that there are cultures around the world that simply do not have a problem recognizing a cultural need for treatment, an anthropological or shamanistic form. Um, one of my favorites is, is, is uh, Pibloto or Piblotec, which is an Inuit uh, Eskimo uh, disease of Arctic hysteria um i don't know if people are familiar with the performance art music group the residents um i've been a tremendous fan of them they 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 performed you know with with anonymously with giant eyeball heads i I think that's Mm. very they were one of the, the very first uh groups to do some really interesting music videos and they did an album called eskimo which now that's not the politically correct word but they do a piece, a complete sound composition, no um, no lyrics per se. Although they do have um, the shaman voice given uh, a kind of vocalized treatment, but no no coherent words. But Arctic hysteria. I mean, when you think about it, if people have been to to uh, the Arctic Circle, it's um, you get this. In, in the warmer months, and they're not long enough, you get this tremendous sense of, of open horizon, of, of, of tundra and almost being swallowed up by too much landscape, too much visibility. And then in the winter months, this incredibly demonic sense of claustrophobia. I mean, we talk about cabin fever. No, no, no. This is much more intense. So it makes sense that that would be a cultural experience. Sure, some individuals may have it more uh, in extreme fashion than others. But um, then we've got, you know, in other parts, we've got running amok. What a great Mm -hmm. expression. We've all heard of that. Mm -hmm. That's a real cultural term. The Evil Eye, again, a a very real cultural uh, syndrome. Uh, Lata, or Lata, which William Burroughs speaks of. Um, In Native American culture, the ghost sickness and the Wendigo Wendigo sickness. Wendigo and and Wetiko, too. I mean, Mm -hmm. yes, I mean, think about that. I mean, those have been uh, kind of processed and and packaged into some interesting, uh, you know, commercial horror stories. But they come out of a deep folklore and mythology that's very taken very very seriously um susto is uh a condition a loss of soul perdido de alma um which is affects um latino people often in um in a say an american situation uh an immigrant sort of situation i i incorporated that into my uh, which everybody novel, should private go by and
0: interrupt you so go I mean, by private midnight it's a classic just trust me
1: We're making a little progress on the TV series front, which I, I hope to have some more news about that at some point. But, uh, uh, you know, the, these, then we go back to, you know, the middle ages of of St. Vitus dance, these crazy dance manias, uh, thought contagion that takes a very, very physical format. But But here is, I think, and they're called startle disorders. That's the... the the trade name for them, which I kind of like. But here is my my current personal favorite, and I think this deserves uh, a movie. It's The Case of the Jumping Frenchman of Maine, okay? That title alone. This goes back to a group of lumberjacks in the Moosehead Lake region in the late 1870s, it peaked in 1878, but it was going for a while. They, these lumberjacks, you know, let's face it, lumberjacks, those are not the kind of people who have mental health problems. They shouldn't. You know.
0: Well, they, they, or maybe they they do. (laughs) I don't know. They're in nature 24-7. Isolation might be a problem. Um, But, you know, according to our modern understanding of, of, mental health disorders, they shouldn't have
1: them. Well, they certainly shouldn't have had this syndrome from a personal dignity standpoint, because what ended up happening was they all started leaping about, leaping, jumping, hopping, hopping, like bad ballet dancers. I I think that's a very, very dubious look for hardy lumberjacks in the Maine woods. So, I mean, who knows? You know, humanity is so strange. Who knows what, what peculiar syndromes are, are waiting for us up ahead? And now with social media and the contagious power of the internet, it, anything is possible. I mean, really, wouldn't, isn't it to a point where if someone said to you almost anything, you, you'd you'd believe it.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You, you'd Google on it and go, "Well, let, let's see, is there any, any any news about this?" You know, right?
0: Uh, yeah. What you're talking about um, with all these kind of mass delusions and hysteria reminds me of uh, Marian apparitions. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Yes. Which right, right, good point. Very, very prominent. I'll put a link in the show notes. To a map that I found of different Marian apparitions that have occurred over the past three, 400 years. And it's, it's spread all over Europe, uh, concentrated very heavily in Italy, unsurprisingly, um, and also France. Um, and so, you know, you have like Our Lady of Lords, the Lady of Knock, uh, things like that. But the most famous one is probably Our Lady of Fatima, which is still, you know, iconographized in, in various different rosaries and, and prayers and things like that. And so Fatima was a Marian apparition. So the Virgin Mary appeared to uh, three small children and gave them messages about the future. And this is very interesting because it ties back to what we were talking about earlier on in the conversation when I gave that alien talk you know, a lot of people mm-hmm, have right. have thought of the Marian apparitions as alien contact, of, of aliens saying X, Y, Z. Okay, so basically in, in the Fatima situation, uh, these kids wouldn't recant their stories. They, you know, they said a, a lady more brilliant than the sun appeared to them um, and asked them to basically devote themselves to... Um, the Holy Trinity, pray the rosary, blah, blah, blah. The, the, the war will be over. This was in um, 1917. So a very tumultuous time, right? Um, and people think that this, basically the predictions were everything from, you know, predicting the Spanish flu, which started a year later. Um, and also, you know, other things that would happen sociopolitically in that region, that these kids were in, right? Um, I don't buy the alien angle. I really don't. Um, I think that we're dealing with different things when we are talking about Marian apparitions or, you know, this jumping syndrome that these Frenchmen had <laughs> in Maine. Uh, <laughs> these aren't extraterrestrials. This is something else. This is a kind of, you know, we're relating it to the dSM and 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 mental illness, but I think that what we're trying to do here, at least it's what I hope we're trying to do, is we're trying to trouble the idea of mental illness, right? To the point where it's not something where somebody comes in and diagnoses it and says, "Oh, well, this is fake or this is this is real." What we're saying is more there's something interesting going on with quote unquote, mental illnesses that might be misdiagnosed shamanic. Experiences.
1: Right. Well, I think that is absolutely what we're saying. And so to phrase it another way is that the current and conventional and, and tired uh, framework that both professional psychologists and psychiatrists and lay people often put down on this must, by definition, be fundamentally in error. Or at least grossly simplistic and missing something really crucial. Uh, I, I think there's the, that has to be the case because the, what we're what we're giving is is this terrible binary between mm-hmm. is it real or not? You know, was it a, an hallucination or was it actually
0: physically? Is it there? A, is it a disorder or is it actually part of the order?
1: Exactly, and I mean. To go back to Jung, you know, I mean, he, he, he talked about this in terms of the UFO phenomenon and, and trying to break down this, well, were there are there things in the sky or are there things in people's heads? And why that distinction mm-hmm. is itself very, very faulty. Um, because why would it be in many people's heads? you know if, if that's that's pretty real. Right. I think that word real is is one of the major words, real and natural. Are two words we're going to have to get past if we're going to make any sort of progress, real progress as a civilization. Um, it just it, mm-hmm. it that that binary is just not gonna not gonna cut it. Um,
0: but what's so interesting about this too is that mental illnesses are so often placed onto the individual. You know, a person has schizophrenia or a person has depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, bipolar. So, what do you do when multiple people or entire communities have the same quote unquote disorder it doesn't It doesn't work anymore
1: no I mean I mean Freud said that you know one person's you know strange delusion is is a neurosis when when multiple people share it, it's called religion you know <laughs> uh and I, I I think that that's so often the case um and and you can see why it pays to have. Uh, an individual claim this isolated case that 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 can work for them in terms of it gives them something to hang on to Uh, it gives them some sort of maybe some prestige or status Uh, think of munchausen syndrome uh, which is a very odd thing of of really wanting to have something wrong Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. as long as you can get that diagnosis that validates your problems Mm -hmm. um you know I was thinking uh, it, this is an interesting maybe test case of of uh, an artist that i that I love just terribly. Joni Mitchell, who um, I think is one of the greatest songwriters uh, we've ever had, uh, certainly America's ever had. Um, but people may know, I mean, she's she's had some health issues. She had an aneurysm uh, going back a couple of years, which I think she's recovered from. But she claims this is her claim to suffer from a, a, a condition called Morgellons syndrome. Have you heard of this?
0: I have, yeah. I have. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So basically, um, skin infection,
1: right? Right, a, parasit- a parasitic skin infection of often, as if fibers, but not so much, uh, uh, a, a, like a, an insect uh, there are there are many people who have those which I think would be horrific those don't, tend not to last so long those are often more associated with drug and alcohol withdrawal and um, various traumas but uh, Morgellons um, seems to be um, I mean it, it's rare enough so it, it's probably there's not a lot of evidence to draw on mm-hmm. but people uh, seem to think that fibers are growing through their skin um which i mean it's it's still the same thing as some sort of infestation it would be uh it would be just terrible to to have to endure that um but but so what's your thought about that in terms of if we cross index that with the Marian i mean because the the Marian hallucinations visions however we want to visitations if we want to call it that visitations Those seem to be to be in a very, very different register. And in the case of the Fatima uh, situation, that happened, uh, I believe, multiple times and and really involved many crowds of people, crowds of people. So how do we index that back against this very individual uh, problem that Joni Mitchell is, is experiencing, say?
0: I would boil it down to one word, which is community. Okay. So, I think that the experiences that you have depend on the connectedness that you have towards a community that you're in. So, it can manifest itself as a, a kind of Marian apparition, as it did to all these different people. And it's you know it's important to also think that these might be two different things. Um, I think that Morgellons syndrome probably has more to do with the penis shrinking syndrome than it does with a Marian apparition, you know? Um, I think that human beings are radios, we're conduits for spiritual energy. And I think that when you're in a group of people who share that spiritual energy, whether you're in a snake handling church in West Virginia or in a small village in rural France, that can manifest itself as these kind of beatific visions of the holy. But I think that that same kind of energy, when focused specifically on one isolated person, can have these kind of offshoots, these these unpleasant manifestations. So think about what's going on with Morgellon syndrome, right? You know, things are growing out of your skin. And you're kind of collecting them. Well, that is a disorder that is implying that there is something that is coming from you, a source, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, You're isolated, you're alone, and things are growing out of you. It's almost like a thing that's reaching, it's it's trying to create community through parasitic, interesting
1: um, ideas,
0: sloughing off, right? But if you already
1: interesting, it's reaching out where the person can precisely precisely okay. I like that. If you
0: already have that, it can manifest. It can the energy can disseminate out in very kind of orgiastic, beautiful uh, uh, ways where you have these intense kind of visions. You know, again, going back to the snake handling churches to the dance language of beasts. It's different when you're in a group. It's different when that energy can be disseminated. Mm -hmm. Right. When you're by yourself, (laughs) some freaky shit starts to happen, you know? And then what happens? You go to a, a psychologist and you tell somebody about it. Right. What is Morgellons if not the, the body rebelling to the point that you have to go interact with another person. Right. Right. And, and
1: one of the telltale, uh, Uh, diagnostic clues is what they call the matchbook sign, matchbox sign where the the people who who suffer from this condition invariably uh, collect samples of these fibers in in, in a matchbox, for instance, and take them into the therapist to document the delusion, to document the problem. They absolutely need that validation. And of course, I mean that in the literature it says that you know off you know the fibers are are completely explainable and are you know usually normal tufts of lint or threads or whatever. But it is that mm-hmm. it is it, it really is a search for community. I think that's an excellent way to think of it. That um, it, it's that dissolution of self, which uh, John Lilly, who is one of my great intellectual heroes of my early twenties. You know, he was the dolphin uh, communication experiment, the inventor of the mm-hmm. sensory deprivation mm-hmm. tank and many yep. other things. Right. But, you know, his one of his big insights was the greatest human fear is not death. It's the fear of madness, of dissolution of self. And so the, the Morgellons fibers are a way of seeking out that that community, of trying to leverage some validation mm-hmm. and connection. Whereas Correct. the Marian... Uh, visions show the power of, of group magical thinking, magical connection, and mm-hmm. for good and for ill, perhaps. You know, I think that's the problem of, of the group side of it. I mean, uh, Emerson said back in the middle of the 19th century, you know, now we are a mob, you know, which is pretty relevant today, that, that group thinking mm-hmm. can escalate and exponentially blow something up. And um, I mean, Jung said, you know, masses are always breeding grounds for psychic epidemics. I mean, that's mm, the danger, mm, you know. Mm. That's the they that that group is is and community. Well, there's a big difference between mass and mob and community, isn't there? That's maybe what we're really talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if we're looking at masses,
0: community implies a yeah.
1: Well, a kind of but, intimate, yeah. uh, manageable, practical connection that is acknowledging of the individual it goes back to our sense of home in our in you know when we in one of i think our first episode talking about home is a place where you can make a difference where you matter you know you're not just Mm -hmm. a face in the crowd um and i think that's so really it's kind of a flip side so we got morgellons on the one side and we've got mass delusion you know it's it's Mm
0: -hmm. well Well, think about it this way. Think about OCD, you know? OCD is basically having to do ritual uh, procedures in order to stave off a horrible future that you don't want to have happen. You know, somebody that you care about dying, whatever. I mean, that's a very individualistic ailment. So I almost wonder if I were to get together with a bunch of other people who have obsessive-compulsive disorder, what kind of rituals could we do in community to exercise that, right? I I wouldn't want to take a pill. I wouldn't want to be drugged up and get to the point where, you know, I'm in this gray morass of, you know, nothing, where I'm finally just able to, to function in society. No, I want an exorcism. And exorcism... An exorcism requires at least two people, and maybe isolation. Again, going back to the Morgellon syndrome, maybe isolation is the fucking problem.
1: Well, I, it's certainly isolation in terms of alienation and 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 disassociation. It may not literally be uh, isolation mm-hmm. in that physical sense, and that takes us back to this this critique of right. materialism Correct. and yeah. and the mechanistic approach of well, you know you're not physically alone I mean everyone's had that experience of being a feeling totally alone in the midst of a giant city you know the lonely crowd that's a famous book I mean, we've all had that experience mm-hmm. so it's it's never mm-hmm. isolation uh, in in physical terms that's the real issue it's it's, it's more that mental psychological spiritual um you know, and maybe we need to, mm-hmm. I, you know, mm-hmm. the problem is sooner or later, we're going to get to that word spiritual. I mean, it's, it, you know, it, it's it's hard yeah, to yeah, avoid. It's yeah, hard exactly. to avoid. Exactly. I think that word, honestly, this might be uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is the last word or not. I think spiritual is almost more of a squirm word for many people than penis shrinkage or genital, uh, you know,
0: Seth would be. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so too. I think so too. And I think that in our next episode, we can actually get into something that's maybe a bit more controversial, which is this idea that people are actively contributing to being sick. So it's kind of the Mm -hmm. the evil yang to the yin that we're talking about right now, Uh, how people can kind of create mass uh, delusions and hysteria and, and frankly, sickness that I think manifests itself in things like COVID-19 that you pointed out very well. um, And also um, Trump derangement syndrome, (laughs) which is something that people definitely suffer from, but I think that we can get into that next episode. What do you think?
1: I think so. And I think that we can talk about, you know, the, the media involvement uh, the idea of just keeping people on edge and, and at each other's throats. Uh, mm-hmm. Certainly, that the whole psyops, uh, we've used that term before. I think people understand that in terms of, you know, psychological manipulation for the purpose of propaganda, for the purpose of, you know, manipulating purchases in a commercial sense. I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, all you have to do is walk into any sort of Walgreens drugstore and you look at the medications that are there and you get a good feeling for what's going on in the culture and what buttons are being pushed, you know? Right. It's, uh...
0: and we can, we can take a a nice little hammer to all that shit. But um, for now, I think we'll close it up. I think this was a great conversation. Um, I encourage people to email us at the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com. Gotten a few emails so far, but I would like to see more. So please do send that. I'm on Twitter at BRBJDO. Chris is on Twitter at Chris Sacknessum. I'll put those all in the show notes. Chris, do you have anything else that you want to talk about before we uh, wrap this one up?
1: One other book recommendation, um, which is, I think, really, really relevant. Many people might have heard of this, and even uh, it's still very much in print and, and, and a real reference. Uh, But it started off a whole kind of cultural anthropology of its kind, Uh, The Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, which was originally published in 1841, which shows you, you know, I mean, this was before really a coherent kind of mass communications in the sense that we know of today. Newspapers were still very irregular. We had a very uncertain transportation system. But it documents historically uh, thought contagion, strange patterns of behavior, the kinds of psychic epidemics uh, that, that Jung and others would, would go on to talk about. I, uh, I have a copy, um, and it's it's just fun to read. It It, it really lays out some interesting... Um, it looks at a whole bunch of wonderful uh, historical hoaxes, fads, uh, manias. It's, it's a mixture of things that will strike you funny at a distance and also make you think, oh, this is pretty serious. So a very, very interesting work. Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds.
0: Great. Excellent. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And remember, Mother is the Best Bet. Don't let Satan draw you too fast.